Turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 63. This is the text for Pastor John's sermon this morning. Psalm 63. O God, Thou art my God, I shall seek Thee earnestly. My soul thirsts for Thee, and my flesh yearns for Thee in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Thus I have beheld Thee in the sanctuary to see Thy power and Thy glory. Because Thy loving kindness is better than life, My lips will praise thee. So I will bless thee as long as I live. I will lift up my hands in thy name. My soul is satisfied as with marrow and fatness. And my mouth offers praises with joyful lips. When I remember thee on my bed, I meditate on thee in the night watches. For thou hast been my help. And in the shadow of thy wings I sing for joy. My soul clings to thee and thy right hand upholds me. But those who seek my life to destroy it will go into the depths of the earth. They will be delivered over to the power of the sword, and they will be a prey for foxes. But the king will rejoice in God. Everyone who swears by him will glory, for the mouths of those who speak lies will be stopped. The fear of hell is a good and a helpful thing. Jesus said, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. Fear him who after he has killed can cast soul and body into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. In other words, fear the judgment of God. Last week's text was Romans 11, 20 and 22. It went like this. Do not become proud, but fear. Behold the kindness and the severity of God. Not just the severity, but also the kindness. Not just the kindness, but also the severity. And when you behold the severity and the kindness, do not become proud, but fear. Hebrews 10, 31 says... It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Hell is a horrible reality. To my knowledge, hell has never been overstated in its terribleness. Neither in art that I've ever seen, or in visual, I mean in in words, descriptions. It is so awful... I don't think it can be overstated. That's why the words of Jesus are so horrid that we talked about last week. And the point last week was that hell is an echo of the glory of God in two senses. The Bible assumes that an eternal hell of suffering is a just recompense for a life of unrepentant sinning. And sin is a falling short of the glory of God, and therefore what hell ought to say to us is, look how glorious God is. That sin against a glorious God would be worthy of an infinite suffering. Oh, how glorious God must be that sin against Him in order to be made just and right in the universe would require endless suffering. 
Hell is an echo of the glory of God. That's the first sense. The second sense in which it's an echo of the glory of God is the cross. I'm sitting at a table in the lunch room down at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School when I was away on writing leave with Tom Nettles, who wrote By His Grace and For His Glory, one of these really good books. And and when I told him I was going to preach on the echo and the insufficiency of hell, he said, oh, great! And then he gave it a meaning totally different than what I had, which is where I got this second point. He just held forth for about five minutes about the cross and what hell means about the cross. And basically, I'm giving you a paraphrase of what I heard from Tom Nettles. Namely, that if in a space of 33 years, one God-man could justly, by substitution, bear the suffering of all the hells, of all the people who will be saved, what a suffering it must have been. And what a glory he must have forsaken. What an infinite space he must have transversed in order to humble himself low enough that when all the wrath fell upon him, all of the eternal sufferings of all of the redeemed went on to him into a space of 33 years. Somebody asked me as I was walking out, as, as they were walking out, and I was standing at the door, do you mean that you believe the whole life of Jesus was an atoning work and not just the death on the cross? And I said, I do believe that. And the reason I do is because of Romans 5, where it says, Wherefore, as by the disobedience of one man many were made sinners... So by the obedience of one man, many will be made righteous. And if you ask, well, what was his obedience? The answer is, the obedience of Jesus began when his father said, are you willing? And he said, I am willing. That's where your atonement began. That's where your salvation began. And when he left heaven, Philippians 2 describes it as he took on the form of a servant and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. You picture this long descent to the worst possible death and then in those three hours, the eternity of suffering reached its climax as the sins and the penalty of the millions of redeemed who have believed and will believe before this age is over were poured out on Jesus Christ. And when you think about hell, when you think about an eternity of sufferings, if you just had one, namely yours, and it was all put into a space of 33 years and pressed on one man, would you not stand and say, that is glorious beyond imagination? And would not hell then become an echo of the glory of Jesus and His work for you on the cross and in His life. That's last Sunday. The echo of the glory of God is what hell is all about. Now today, I want to talk about the insufficiency of hell. 
And what I mean by that is that hell is insufficient to save anybody. Hell can't scare anybody into heaven. Why? Because heaven is a place for people who love God, not fear hell. O God, Thou art my God. I seek Thee. My flesh longs for Thee. My soul faints for Thee as in a dry and weary land where no water is. I have beheld Thee in the sanctuary. I have looked upon Thy power and Thy glory because Your steadfast love is better than life and anything in life. My lips will praise Thee. It is not the real estate. God. Heaven will be inhabited by people who love God. James 2.5 God promised a crown of life to all who love Him. James 2.12 God promised the kingdom to all who love Him. All things work together for the good of those who love Him. There will be no one in heaven who has not fallen in love with God. Fear of pain is no sign of love for God. Wanting to be plucked out of the water when you're drowning into a lifeboat proves nothing about your affections for the captain of the ship. And I fear for the church that there are many people who, out of fear of hell, which is a purely natural response that requires no work of the Holy Spirit, nobody likes to have themselves burned and hurt. That's purely natural. That there are people who are in the church doing a religious thing, and that's all their motive has ever been. Keep me away from that awful thing of hell and let me get into heaven where I'll be well and where I'll have all the toys that I want forever. And a love relationship with a person called God is not their experience. It's a frightening thing. Hell and the fear of it is not the pathway to heaven. Love to God is the pathway to heaven. Now, I want to take you on a little journey of discovery. Last January, out there in the commons, we had a night of prayer. And I remember standing right on the other side of those double doors. And I had been assigned to do the 1 o'clock to 2 o'clock, I believe. It might have been 12 to 1, I can't remember. And my job was to lead us in one hour of, of uh, repentance and confession of sin. So I had thought about this. And I made a discovery that has weighed on me has been fruitful in my life, has shaped almost everything I've done for the last six months. I've given lectures in Tucson and in Canfield, Ohio, on the basis of that insight. And it's forming what I'm doing right now. And I want to I take you, the, my people, on a step-by-step -step discovery of, of what I found. I'll tell you what I found, and then we'll, we'll walk through the discovery process. What I found was the paradox that genuine heartfelt pain over sin 
flows only from genuine heartfelt pleasure in God. Now, that that probably doesn't click with most of you. It wouldn't click with me if I just heard that sentence. Genuine, evangelical, broken-hearted tears over sin flows only from having fallen in love with and delighting in the beauty of God. Now, I'll try to explain that as we take you on the path. I, I open my journal and diary of David Brainerd, the missionary to the Indians 200 years ago in New Jersey and New England. And I found these kinds of sentences as he described the awakening among the Indians under his preaching. August 9, 1745. There were many tears among them while I was discoursing publicly, yet some were much affected with a few words spoken to them in a powerful manner, which caused the persons to cry out in an anguish of soul. Although I spoke not a word of terror, but on the contrary set before them the fullness and all-sufficiency of Christ's merits and his willingness to save all who come to him and thereupon pressed them to come without delay. August 6. It was surprising to see how their hearts seemed to be pierced with the tender, melting invitations of the gospel when there was not a word of terror spoken to them. November 30th preaching on Luke 16, where uh, Lazarus has gone into the bosom of Abraham as the poor, neglected beggar, and the rich man is in the flames of Hades. November 30. The word made powerful impressions upon many in the assembly, especially while I spoke of the blessedness of Lazarus in Abraham's bosom. This, I could perceive, affected them much more than what I spoke of the rich man's misery and torments. And thus it has been usually with them. They have almost always appeared much more affected by the comfortable than the dreadful truths of God's Word. And that which has distressed many of them under convictions is that they found they wanted and could not obtain the happiness of the godly. Now, what Brainerd is simply documenting for us is the insufficiency of hell to save anybody. He's saying that the fear of hell did not break their heart. It didn't break their heart. There were no tears flowing as a result of portraying the horrible outcomes of a life of sin. That didn't break their heart. It didn't bring genuine tears of repentance. Only a portrait of Christ. Only the beauties of God in His grace and goodness and power and wisdom and justice and truth, the fullness of who God is, especially the merits of Jesus Christ's all-sufficiency for sinners, that broke their hearts. Now, isn't that remarkable? That the portrait of something beautiful and pleasurable would cause pain. There's a a deep secret here hope you get it before we're done. There is a profound secret about genuine evangelical repentance. Before we analyze it a little further, let me give you a biblical example. Luke 5, you don't need to look this up. It's a familiar story. I'm just going to paraphrase it. Luke 5, 1 to 10, Jesus gets into a boat. He's off land. I wish I knew how far off land he would get before he taught because 
you know, with the wind and the waves, his voice must have been a big voice. I usually think of Jesus talking softly to the twelve, but when you're in a boat off the land, you've got a thousand people, you don't have any microphone. He's talking to all these people, he's finished teaching, and he turns to Peter and the rest, and he says, push out and drop down your nets for a catch. And Peter says, Lord, we have toiled all night long, and there's nothing down there. <laughs> and he hesitates, and then he says, nevertheless, at your word, we will put down the nets. And they put them down, and so many fish are caught that the nets start to break. So what has happened is that there's been a brief expression of unbelief and doubt. He goes ahead, and a, a gracious miracle is given. I mean, that must have provided them money for a month, that many fish. So he's gracious to them. Now, what is Peter's response to this grace? I'll read it to you. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. It's not a modern response to grace. Today we are taught incessantly that when grace comes to you, what it really signifies is your worth. Now, I just... I don't want to say too much negative about that. Just to put Peter before you as another way of responding to grace. Peter saw it and fell down at Jesus' knees and said, I can't even stay in your presence. I am a sinful man, O Lord. Now, why is that? The Indians in Cross Weeks of New Jersey and Peter the fisherman are graced with portrayals, powerful portrayals of the all-sufficiency of Jesus for their lives. And the effect is pain. Why is that? Genuine gospel contrition for sin and sorrow is a sorrow for not having holiness. Now mark this. You've got to be careful here because there are tears that are not tears of repentance. If a criminal commits a crime, goes to court, is found guilty, the judge comes back into the room, pronounces a long and severe sentence, the criminal might weep. But you don't know what's going on in his heart yet. Because he might weep not because he has come to love righteousness, and is being kept from performing it. He might be weeping because he still loves unrighteousness and is being kept from performing it. Tears over consequences of wrongdoing prove nothing about the love of rightdoing. Nothing. And so you can't just say, oh good, people are crying. That's not enough. There are tears that are purely natural tears, have no grace within them, are not the pathway to heaven. They are legal tears, fearful tears, cringing tears, consequential tears, tears of fear, not tears of having fallen in love with God and His holiness and now feeling remorse that we've been so far from it. You see the difference why we have to be so careful in defining what 
true gospel repentance is. The only true sorrow for not having holiness comes from a love of holiness. This is what was so shocking to me last January. The only true tears, the only true contrition and remorse and brokenheartedness for not having holiness must be preceded by falling in love with holiness. Otherwise, all you're crying about is threats. Do you see the implication of that for witnessing and preaching? This is why it's been on my shoulders for six months. How then should one preach to break the heart? It was a remarkable discovery. In order to cry over not having something, you have to fall in love with it. Take a man and a woman. Before they fall in love, parting would cause little pain. After they fall in love, a breach will be painful to the core. That's the way it is with holiness. You've got to fall in love with holiness before you feel genuine evangelical penitence for falling short of holiness. If the only thing that charges your batteries of remorse and contrition and sorrow is the penalty of not following holiness, you don't love holiness. You don't love God. And you won't go to heaven. You go to church all your life long, you can shed tears every Sunday and shudder at the prospect of hell and not be saved. Salvation is a supernatural event by which taste buds are created on the tongue of the soul so that you can say, taste and see that the Lord is good. The Holy Spirit doesn't have to do one thing to you to make you shudder at the prospect of not wanting to burn. That's a natural event, not a supernatural one. Nobody gets to heaven who's not been born supernaturally. This was a remarkable discovery that falling in love with God has to precede the pain of realizing we're not His. Hell can't do any of that. Hell is insufficient. It can't produce tears. Missing God and missing heaven are two different emotions. Nobody is saved by a sense of missing heaven. We're saved by a sense of missing God. I sometimes have asked you as a congregation when I go to speak other places, one of the most pointed, arresting, fearful questions that I could ever ask is, would you be satisfied to go to heaven, have everybody there in your family that you want there, have all the health and restoration of your prime and everything you dislike about yourself fixed, have every recreation you've ever dreamed available to you, and have infinite resources of money to spend, would you be satisfied if God weren't there? I just fear there's so many thousands who would say, sure. If you got all that, what do you need God for? Which shows that what people really do with God is use Him. He's not the end of their quest. He's a stepping stone to the end. 
which is money, pleasure. God is our pleasure or we won't be there. See how radical this is? It's real important to me that I understand the roots of repentance in love to God. Peter, I think what was going on in Peter's mind was something like this. He looked at what he had just said. I know fish down there. And then he looked at the miracle of grace. Jesus hadn't said to Peter, don't you ever talk to me like that. I'm the son of God. People who talk like that to me are in danger of hell fire. That that, that would not have produced tears, probably. What Jesus did was listen to him, listen him out, wait. Peter found himself. And then Jesus said, fish in the net. And they came in the net and Peter senses my life, my attitude, my feelings, my whole world is out of sync with reality. And he's on his face. He says, on his face. I I can't stand before this. If that much grace and that much power conspire to perform that kind of thing. The one with whom I have to do is so great and so magnificent and so all-sufficient and so all-satisfying. Everything in my life has got to change. I will live totally differently. I will have so much freedom from the fleeting pleasures of sin. I will be so liberated to take risks for God. I will be a new man. All of that sense of inadequacy, all of that because Jesus showed him grace and power mingled rather than merely threat of punishment. And so my my discovery is that until God is our treasure, we will not grieve as we ought. We will not grieve over falling short of being satisfied in him. Hell cannot produce satisfaction in God. Hell cannot produce remorse for not having God. Hell cannot produce gospel repentance, therefore, and therefore it cannot save. What that means for us is that we've got to say alluring things to each other. My job as a pastor, if I'm right now, if I'm on the right track, the lion's share of my preaching must be addicting to God. It must be alluring to God. My charge, even when my charge is to produce pain in you, pain because of the sin that you're walking in right now, if my job is to produce pain where there's sin, what what am I hearing from this text for how to do that? What I'm hearing is my job is to paint word pictures on the authority of God's word which are so irresistibly attractive that when sinners see them, they feel awful about the white bread they've been stuffing themselves with just before the Thanksgiving dinner. And they weep. And this time, the tears are not flowing because they heard that people who keep on in that kind of sin are going to go to hell, which doesn't prove anything about their relation to God. Rather, the tears are coming from the fact that they've missed so much. They've missed so much. That's my job. And that's your job with each other. That's the way you build each other up in the faith. That's the way you talk at work. 
Now, oh, I hope nobody hears a health, wealth, and prosperity gospel here. As though the portrait I am or you are painting is bigger cars, bigger houses, better clothes, healthier bodies. Come on, God pays. I hate it. Because, you know why? It's idolatry. You step on God. Oh, I've got all I need right here. Give me that, God. I don't need you anymore. God is our treasure. Whom have I in heaven but thee? Nothing. And on earth there is nothing that I desire besides thee. My whole life is devoted to helping people fall out of love with the world and fall in love with God. And I mean by world, 90% innocent things. The main problem in the church is not gross sinning. The main problem in the church is loving innocent things. Being addicted to the world and looking just like the world because our treasure is not in heaven, namely God. So let me sum it up. The most striking way to put it is simply the pain of genuine repentance flows from the pleasure of seeing God. The pain of genuine repentance flows from the pleasure of seeing God. Genuine grief over sin comes from genuine joy in the glory of God. Once you've tasted the goodness of God, the glory of God, the beauty of God, once you've tasted it, you will weep, you will weep when you wake up in the morning and realize you've spent a day committing adultery with another husband besides the Lord. That's why Jesus called the generation, oh, wicked and adulterous generation. What do you mean by adulterous? He didn't mean they committed adultery physically. The Pharisees didn't do that, by and large. They were an adulterous generation because they had a husband called God. He offered himself to them as the infinitely satisfying husband in a love relationship, and they thumbed their nose at him and fell in love with money, religion, prestige, houses, lands, family, job, computers, alcohol, drugs, sex, innocent things and problem things. And God says, that's adultery. But if they have truly fallen in love with their husband, the tears will not be because of the consequences, but because they've missed so much and dishonored him so deeply. The practical purpose of hell is to shock us out of our love affair with the world. But only the fountain of life will save. So I close by urging you, don't let the fear of hell be your main motive for wanting to get to heaven because you won't get there. Rather, behold the beauty, the glory, the justice, the goodness, the wisdom, the truth, the grace, the mercy, the patience, the whole panorama of the perfections of Almighty God and let yourself fall in love with Him as the satisfaction of your soul. And that will be the pathway that leads to glory. Let the insufficiency of hell drive you to the all-sufficiency of Christ.
Lord, create those taste buds right now for some in this room who've had a kind of religiosity, or maybe not even that, and have walked in here this morning not expecting to hear anything like this at all and are right now really concerned about their own soul. Just move right throughout this room in this closing moment and create taste buds that enable everyone here to discern the sweetness of holiness and of the beauty of yourself and your son and his work on the cross and let that taste of sweetness now produce the appropriate pain of regret at how long they have dulled their souls on fleeting, unsatisfying, non-God-like pleasures. So I ask for this miracle. It's called regeneration. It's called new birth. It's called effectual calling. Perform it for everyone who needs it, I pray, Father. Father, dismiss us now, I pray, with your blessing. We need you. Go with us all through this week and kindle an affection in us, a pleasure in you that will yield the appropriate pain of remorse whenever we sin and keep us on the path of love that leads to life. In Jesus' name.